In the race to success, we're not all starting from the same place. Level the Pursuit seeks to fill in the gaps and provide accessible, bite-sized leadership lessons for anyone looking to improve their skills and prepare for the next step, whatever that might be. Welcome back, peeps. I hope you're having a great week. And if you're in one of the areas of the country that's been absolutely pummeled by the storm, I hope you're doing okay and that your families are safe. I know that my family has dealt with uh, still doesn't have potable water and finally got their power back on. And so hopefully you and yours are doing okay if you're if you're dealing, that, dealing with that as well. Today we have a treat. We're going to talk to Lieutenant Nick Palzer. So this guy is a man after my own heart, started out as a firefighter and went back to school to become a nurse. And he's now serving our country as a nurse, absolutely kicking butt and doing it. And he has some really great perspectives having been rising up through the NCO Corps and supervising at different levels, and then now being an officer and supervising in a completely different way. So he has some great perspectives on the best ways to lead and the best ways to follow as you go through that progression. This week, give some time to what makes a really good supervisor. Think about the things that you do in your life and then find some ways that you can incorporate them better into how you behave as a professional each day. So Nick, welcome. It is such a pleasure to have you here today. I'm really excited to get to talk to you a little bit about your experiences and hear the great things that you're up to. Oh, well, thank you for having me, ma'am. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, again, I, I'll try to bring something to the table, but we'll, uh, we'll see how we do. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. So let's start out with an easy one. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about your experiences, how you got to be a nurse today? Where did you start and where, and what was your path to get there? So that's actually a really crazy question. Um, the short version is, so I graduated high school in 2011 from uh, Jensen Beach, Florida. Went to Jensen Beach High School, the home of the Falcons. Um, from there, I decided I was going to go to Virginia Military Institute. Um, didn't graduate VMI um, as much as I loved being a rat and getting my, my head shaved once a week, which was a great time. Um, I left VMI after a semester. Uh, I decided I was going to enlist because that's always a good thing, obviously. Uh, I decided to enlist in the Air Force because um, that's the right choice and I had the choice. Um, and then from there, I got a contract as a firefighter in 2012 and I was already an EMT. So it was a nice fit and I had always wanted to go medical. So the, the plan was eventually to go into the nurse corps. Uh, so from there, I left in 2012 for Lackland Air Force Base for BMT. Uh, basic military training where you have a lot of fun, as people will tell you, <laughs> fun in quotes. Uh, and then from there, I went to Goodfellow Air Force Base and went to the fire academy there for the Department of Defense. It's a joint school, a lot of fun, great time. Uh, we earn a lot of certifications out of it, which I still hold to this day, which are amazing. And then from there, I got an assignment to Kadena Air Base to Okinawa, Japan. Uh, first assignment is a brand new A1C at 19 years old in Japan. Uh, it was amazing. I spent a little over two years there, um, which I could not go without saying I met my lovely wife there. And we've been married as of this April. We'll have been married seven years. So Yay, congratulations. Thank you. Um, so we were enlisted together. So we spent some time there. And then 2015, fast forwarding through the, my time in the fire department, we came back to the States to go to FE1 which is in Cheyenne, Wyoming, which is really cold, just for so everyone, fun fact. And then from there, that was when the nursing part kind of started to be, I had been doing prereqs, you know, along the way, 
trying to eventually, you know, go to college, be that good airman and get my degrees. Um, I got my community college of the air force associate degree in fire science pretty early on. So I had a lot of prereqs done, <laughs> excuse me. So I went from to F.E. Warren, started doing more prereqs for nursing school, started getting to the, the anatomy, the physiologies and stuff like that. And then I applied to go to nursing school at the local community college um, because to commission, there's only a couple ways to get into the nurse corps, uh, one of which is to have it a degree beforehand and the other which is called the nurse enlisted commissioning program. So I was working in the fire department, long story short, got accepted into nursing school while I was at F.E. Warren to an associate degree program did part of my associate degree program while still on active duty in the fire department. We did a uh, 48 hours on 72 hours off, which as you know, uh, ma'am is a great schedule, but a very busy one. Uh, went to nursing school, started doing that. And then in May of, let's see, it was May of 18, I got picked up for the nurse enlisted commissioning program. And then I transferred over to the university of Wyoming to the ROTC detachment there. Uh, where my job was simply go to school, which if you don't, anyone who doesn't know, going to school and getting paid to go to school is a great job. And then in 2019, the fall of 19, I graduated the University of Wyoming with my bachelor degree in nursing. And then from there, it was off to a bunch of training. And then here I am now sitting at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base as a nursing officer. Um, so that's kind of the long and skinny on how we got to this point in life. So I'm interested, you went to VMI and you were, obviously you were very intelligent. You, you are still are very intelligent, obviously. Um, you were disciplined and you, you took those into enlisting the Air Force. So what changed that you weren't able to get it while you're at VMI, but you were able to continue moving forward? So that is always another one I get to from a lot of people, um, especially my, my former troops used to ask me that question a lot too. So I left VMI after the semester. A lot, some of it I will absolutely say had to do with money. Um, I did not have scholarships and full rides that I would have had had I stayed in a different state or gone to a different school. My grades in high school were decent, but they weren't getting me a full ride to any college that I wanted. Um, Out-of-state tuition to a different place other than Florida was pretty pricey. So I did take out a little bit of student loan to get through the semester. Uh, my parents weren't able to, you know, finance my college tuition by any means, which was fine by me. Um, and then I'll say a lot of it without going too crazy, uh, otherwise we'd be here for hours, um, was I was definitely still a little, uh, I was, I'll say emotionally immature. Um, I, I thought VMI was a lot worse than it was looking back. Um, you know, things back home, there were some things that I was still hanging on to that I probably shouldn't have been. Um, and it really just turned into like, well, I'm not going to become a nurse being at VMI because I was going to get a bachelor degree in biology and then would have had to go be a, you know, God knows what officer at that point, honestly, because it would have just been, Hey, here you go. And then eventually tried to transition into the nurse corps. And I'm like, well, that's going to be a really long time and probably not get me what I want. So this might be a better road. Um, and I could get some experience in the, the enlisted corps, get a lot of training and education out of it, you know, at the Air Force's dime, of course. 
um, and then probably have a better chance of going commissioning and becoming a nurse rather than trying to go that road. Um, I'll say I have no regret. I loved VMI. It was a lifelong dream that my grandfather actually instilled in me to go to VMI. He did the same thing. Um, he also did the same thing. He did not graduate VMI. Um, <laughs> he he left. You'll laugh. Uh, he left after his rat semester, just like I did the first the first semester of the fall, um, because he was uh, the class of forty four, or would have been the class of forty four. So need I say what he wow. actually did? Wow. Um, you know, he and all his friends left and enlisted off to war. <laughs> Wow, that's wow, that's crazy. So I I can really emphasize with that with that decision making process. So I, you know, I went to Yale and um, it was really expensive. Um, <laughs> my grades actually were, were quite good, and I had quite a bit of scholarship uh, support and also need based from Yale because Yale doesn't give um, merit based scholarships. You don't getting better grades doesn't help you there, but they do give need based based on how much money okay. you have. Good. But if I had gone to Alabama, Oklahoma, there were several schools that were recruiting me for my grades, for my academic performance, I could add a full ride. And so I had people in my family saying, why are you so selfish? Why are you so conceited that you think you have to go to this school and place this burden on everyone instead of going to one of these schools that's free? And I, but I was determined to go. I mean, and I was, you know, I was a knucklehead also. You know, you have this, this things in your head and you have this, this way of, of looking at yourself. So I pushed all? through. Yeah, exactly. And I was in a similar situation my sophomore year. We got to the point uh, when I went home for Christmas my sophomore year, there was no more money. And my mom had had, um, had some job issues and, and I was working full time at school. I had been working full time the whole time I was there. And I, when I went home for Christmas, I was like, oh my goodness, I, I'm not going back. We, I can't afford it. I don't have the money. And through massive blessings, uh, I, and I had been banging the door in the financial aid office for the, the last year and a half about Absolutely. how they evaluated my finances. And because it, without getting too far into it, they were taking some things into account uh, that were not reasonable to take into account. And so I was paying more than I should have based on their algorithm. So I'd go in every semester and fight, fight, fight. And when I was home for Christmas and I had made the decision, I'd, I'd realized I'm not going back. I can't afford, we don't have the money. I can't go back. Uh, they called me over Christmas and said, Hey, we've reevaluated your finances and we've taken these other things into account as you've asked. And this is your new scholarship and I was able to go back to school. So I was in exactly the same position you're describing. I just happened to be very, very lucky that it went the other way, but I very easily could have been, <laughs> I could have done the same. Who knows, for, maybe for I would sure. have enlisted at that point. I mean, it, it's not a bad career. And I, I, I have many prior enlisted friends who did become doctors like yourself. And Absolutely. I by no means will I ever say I have the brain capacity that you do to, oh, to go to MD school. <laughs> I couldn't do that to save my life. Um, but no, I, I would call that persistence. Um, I, oh, I would say sure. you showed nothing but persistence and you didn't <laughs> you didn't let them let the people who couldn't say yes, you didn't let them say no. Absolutely. Well, and let's to talk me, about that's what would matter. We, we were gonna get to that, but I love that <laughs> and my husband loves it too. Cause he so um so tell me so his perspective was never present your proposal to someone who doesn't have the power to say yes. And, but yours is a little different. Tell me a little bit about your thought. 
So I, I would say it's very similar and I, and I will not say that that's copyrighted by me by any means. I've actually heard that from many supervisors um, coming up through the enlisted side. I, I would say I absolutely agree with that. You know, you never don't bring, I'm not going to bring a proposal um, to my flight commander, my squadron commander, my chief nurse, um, you know, unless I know, hey, this is the proposal for this person. They have the power to say yes. Yeah, so you, your enlisted perspective really gives you a leg up on that. You know, a lot of our young enlisted are supervising tons of people before they even get to, you know, they might be 22 and be supervising several people. And, and I think that experience is really, really cool. How do you feel that that helped you to build as you look at your, your professional career now is going, you know, going into nursing? So I would absolutely say being a supervisor was one of the best experiences of my career. Um, to this day. And right now, I don't technically officially supervise anybody. Um, you know, as, as a nurse, as you know, man, being a doctor, um, I supervise my techs on the floor, you know, my, med- my medical technicians as their nurse. Um, and, I, you know, I'm over them as an officer, obviously, just in the chain of command. Um, but I actually don't officially rate or supervise anybody at this time, which frankly, is actually kind of a nice breather because <laughs> I was doing it for a while. Um, but absolutely the best experience, one of the best experiences of my career um, I learned a lot and gained a lot, um, made a f- plenty of mistakes along the way. Being a supervisor, uh, fortunately, didn't harm anyone or harm anyone's careers, except maybe my own at that point. Um, I, I think the experience of it has probably led me to be able to be where I am today. Um, being able to supervise is probably one of the most fulfilling things I've ever done. Um, you know, contrary to being a nurse, it's probably about the same equivalency as, you know, you're still making an impact on people. Um, but I liked being able to give my troops, my airmen, kind of a different light and a different perspective. Um, we all hear this, you know, beat down, beat down, beat down, and you know, nothing but work, no one cares. Well, I actually tried very hard to make a point to, to let my troops know that, well, if the bosses didn't care, I did. And I had the power to go, you know, stand in front of the bosses on their behalf. And if I could, I would. Um, obviously, there were some specific trials and tribulations to that concept where some of them got the uh the non-commissioned officer side of me that was uh guiding them in a very direct manner right we'll go with <laughs> right um but for the most part i would say it was it was a learning experience a great experience and it definitely um i think it helps me today being a nurse and an officer what mistakes have you seen young young supervisors make um i'll own my first one me actually i'll, I'll own that all day um, one mistake of very specific situation was I had a troop uh, who's no longer in the Air Force. Um, he's doing well from what I hear, but I haven't spoken to him in a while due to a number of factors. Um, is you want to always engage with your troops and their family. It was a troop that came to me and uh, was telling me he had thoughts of self-harm at one point, And there had been a whole buildup to this story um, of me checking on him on the day on dailies, you know, with work and talking to the bosses and our management and the fire department culture as a whole is, you know, man, sometimes, you know, that's unfortunately one of those things is, you know, self-harm is something we deal with very frequently. Um, and as young airmen, you know, being at, away from home at their first assignment, that's also a very real thing that we, we have to engage on with our people. So my, my mistake in that though, was not that I wasn't engaged with him because I was probably, I would say overly engaged to a point. Um, just because I wanted to make sure we didn't miss anything. You know, I wanted to make sure he knew, hey, somebody was there. 
um, which I felt was the right way. And my, my supervisors that I sought counsel from on, you know, from my purpose, it was, you know, the, yeah, you're doing the right things. Um, my mistake was, is, and it's more of the leadership side than the supervisor side is that um, you want to always be open and engaged with your people and their family. And unfortunately I got a little over engaged um, with his spouse in the regard of just passing information. Um, and unfortunately, as you know, in the, in the military world, there comes a point where I have to say, I can't speak to you um, as a, as the family member, I'm only here for the troop, you know, you, for this situation, you need to contact the first sergeant. And it turned into this particular spouse just coming at me saying um, abusive authority. I made up the story. You know, he never said these things to me um, when I would, you know, to this day swear on a stack of Bibles that he did. Um, and then, you know, I brought him to the resources that he needed, you know, the mental health counselors and, you know, the physicians and my job was to bring him to the resources. Um, well, the resources were the ones that made all the decisions at that point, not me, but I was getting the brunt from the family side of it, which was understandable. You know, it was a very, very tense, very delicate situation, but I would say um, the mistake was just, you know, knowing that line of when you have to just say no. Um, you have to say no to the family, say you have to talk to these people, not me. My mistake, my biggest loan lesson I learned very early as a supervisor. Um, young supervisors today, I, I think a lot of it is just sometimes they forget, sometimes just sitting back, shutting up and listening does wonders. I, I say that with the most love to all supervisors <laughs> in civilian sector, military sector, but especially in the military, sometimes we just don't shut up and listen. Uh, great individual I learned from one time a former command chief of mine um, and if I said his name you'd absolutely know who I'm talking about I guarantee it um, never take it never pass up a great opportunity to shut the hell up <laughs> that's, that's powerful advice and, like and with that. that I will now shut the hell up <laughs> <laughs> so you know everything there's two sides to every coin so I think that you just highlighted one about being a frontline supervisor is that you have the opportunity to be engaged and to interface with the family, interface with the people, you know, in the military, we interface with the family uh, civilians don't necessarily do that as much, but to really be there for someone and potentially be a powerful force for good. But that proximity also puts you in a position to be, the face of the organization in a negative way and to be the easy one that they can reach out to if something doesn't go the way they want. So that can be a really difficult thing to balance is, and I wonder if that's one of the reasons that some supervisors are hesitant to engage. It's not so much that they're afraid to get involved. Some of them are probably afraid to get involved, but I think some of them are probably also afraid of being the recipient of all of the backlash. I couldn't agree more, uh, ma'am. That's that that is putting it probably a lot simpler than I just explained that entire story. <laughs> um, it really is because it, it absolutely is some supervisors, and you know, I I would argue, even officers, I would say sometimes were absolutely afraid of backlash, and and I wouldn't say so much negative or repercussion, but as much as it is backlash, just getting you know, doing the wrong thing when you're trying to do the right thing or doing the right thing. And then you become the object of the wrong thing. And that's absolutely true. I, supervisors sometimes don't because of that fear. You know, we, in the military, we hear, you know, the inspector general or equal opportunity office. Uh, you know, we hear all these big things, the first sergeant, you know, you hear all these big, scary things when in reality, they're not, 
that real big and scary. I mean, yes, that situation did lead to me having to go sit in front of some people that I would have preferred not to sit in front of and answer some questions. Um, however, my, I had always kept my chain of command and my leadership engaged with me and knew that deep down I was doing the right thing um, and had no real say in the outcome. Just I just became the object of the fixation in the situation, which is understandable. That's a great point. I, that's one thing that I really try to emphasize. And I have personally lived through it on several occasions is when you are trying to do the right thing, you are taking a stand in one direction or another. And when you do that, some people are not going to like it. So that can be a real challenge because we do have so many mechanisms for people to voice their concerns or to lodge complaints when they think that something is not done, being done correctly. And so you can be doing the right thing or believe you're doing the right thing. But if it's not communicated well, or if it's just maybe you don't see some aspect of the situation where it's the wrong thing for someone else or whatever it might be, people can lodge complaints. And once it's lodged against you, there's not a lot you can do about it other than just keep on, keep your head up, try to do the right thing, be honest when you're asked questions, that kind of stuff. But I have seen, and I'm curious to know if you have as well, in general, if you really are trying to do the right thing, it usually turns out okay. It's not painless. Going through a complaint, going through that in, an investigation, any of that stuff, which I personally have gone through, is not fun. I really did not enjoy it at all. The first one hurts <laughs> I would the imagine most. not. <laughs> no, the first one hurts the most. They, they never get easy, but the first one hurts the most. Uh, but in general, the repercussions... And, there, and honestly, even if you're innocent, there sometimes are some repercussions to your psyche, to maybe to the job that you're in right there, because people know about all this water under the bridge. So even if you're, if you're found not to have done it, people are aware that this is going on and they don't have the whole story. So they, you know, that, that whole where there's smoke, there's fire mentality can, <laughs> can come in. So you can still deal with some stuff. Oh, yeah. But in general, the big stuff doesn't happen. If you were doing the right thing and, and coming from a place of respect and trying to help people, even if you did it wrong, even if you messed up, I have seen that in general, it, it works out okay. I haven't, I've, I have personally not seen somebody be massively negatively affected uh, when they were doing the right thing. I have seen someone whose assignment was turned upside down by false complaints. Oh, absolutely. Um, but, I, but I haven't seen any administrative action, you know, anything like that. Have you seen, have you seen that? I I would say I would, I would have to agree with you. As long as you are absolutely on the right side of that coin and you know, you're doing the right steps and, you know, engaging with the right people. And, and unfortunately I have to, you know, full disclosure, you got to cover your butt too. If you didn't document it, it didn't happen. So if you didn't make sure the right people were in the room with you or you had someone to that conversation or, you know, you, you wrote up a memorandum to state X, Y, and Z happened. And on this date and, you know, it's documented. Um, I would absolutely say you're definitely not going to have those administrative reactions, those repercussions. Will it probably turn your life and potentially a little bit of your career upside down? Yeah, Absolutely. I, I've seen that many a times on both the enlisted and the officer side already. The short example I'd give you is, you know, another troop, um, three letters for you, ma'am. O-S-I. Um, for those who don't know, the Office of Special Investigations is the Air Force's, quote, FBI. And I've been in their room now three times in my career. 
Uh, fortunately, none of them were pointed at me, but they were pointed <laughs> at my people. And unfortunately, that also becomes, you know, you have to be able to take care of your people, defend your troops. But again, they have to be on the right side of that coin. Um, in that situation, no negative impacts came to that troop. All these claims were 100% completely malicious and false, and we could actually prove it. Did it impact a few parts of his life and career for a short term? Absolutely. Um, did he come back from it and there was no administrative actions? Absolutely. He's now living great as an NCO, didn't affect his career progression. We were able to still, you know, fix that and take care of that. But yeah, it definitely can be a hard thing to try to be doing the right thing when everybody is looking at you in the situation saying you're the, you're the bad guy. You just brought up something that I think is really interesting when we have oh people, <laughs> here we come. Here uh, it goes so, again. <laughs> so when, when you have someone who's accused of something and in the military, obviously that can extend to criminal circumstances as well as a civilian, you wouldn't necessarily be dealing with someone's criminal activity in the job. Although there may be disciplinary action, you know, right. that kind of stuff. But one of the things that I think some people can really have a hard time with is supporting the person separate from the action, understanding that one, they're innocent until proven guilty, even if you believe it to be true. But two, you know, this person, especially in the military, they are still your airmen. They are still your troop. So it doesn't matter how terrible they are. If they did the most heinous thing, the, the, the one thing that bothers you more than anything else it's still our responsibility as supervisors, as leaders to treat them as human beings and try to get them through that and support them whilst, you know, and so have you seen that be an issue or do you find that a struggle? I, I would say it definitely can be. I, I would say you're, you're stuck in a place sometimes, you know, as you know, the leader you're supposed to be, you know, the leader you want to be, um, which obviously are two very different things sometimes. And sometimes they get very blurry. Uh, we joke, as you know, in the officer corps, you live in the gray. That's what you get paid for. There is no, you know, left, right, middle. Those you live in the gray all day. Um, so I would say, yeah, it, it gets a little hard sometimes because, as an individual, you may have your own thoughts, your own ethical beliefs, your own leadership beliefs, your own morals, etc. Um, and think about those actions or those things that someone did, whether it's in the military, the civilian sector, you know. But you, you kind of look at it from a different perspective. And that perspective sometimes gets blurry as, as the supervisor. You, you got to wonder, well, am I just letting my own feelings get into this? Or am I just being that objective supervisor that I know I should be? And, and that gets a little blurry sometimes, depending on the situation. I've been fortunate enough thus far in my career, knock on wood, um, to where nine times out of 10, I, my personal life choices and thoughts and morals and you know beliefs have not swayed my opinions of my people um, but i will say you know the example i brought up earlier about the troop uh, with the self-harm ideations and again he's you know no longer in the service um, and i'll be full disclosure that was partly due to his own doing um, and partly due to mine and the commander's doing you know even to this day um, there are moments where i i look back on that situation and really i just want to be like you know what I'm so glad I, we, we got him out, you know, our force is better for it. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't say that to attack the individual because I genuinely to this day believe both 
as a former super as his former direct supervisor and as now a nursing officer um, that there were some things that needed to get addressed you know with him in, in his well-being and, and I do hope to this day that he's doing well I do um, but the way that it turned into the direct lash at me both from him and you know his family um, when all you know me and our leadership were trying to do was help him mm-hmm. you know that's a hard thing to think about you mm-hmm. know that's a hard thing to come by of where oh I'm still going to be here and be your supervisor and engage with you and, and, and genuinely care when you're coming at me in a way that you know can make me both get in trouble legally and ethically and you know just just kind of put that down so yeah it's absolutely difficult and you have to own it i would say if you don't then you're doing it wrong because we're not perfect we're all human as supervisors we're all human as leaders both civilian and military side and that's just it's just how it is we're, we're at the end of the day I'm not the perfect supervisor. I'm not the perfect officer. I was not the perfect NCO by any means, but yet you still have to, at the end of the day, do your job. You know, no matter what, the mission has to come first. Your people have to come first. And, you know, a great supervisor once told me people first mission always. And if you live by that, you're probably going to do okay every time. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, You know, it's one of those balances I like to not not know information that I don't need to know in some way, you know, to some extent. So when I was in, <laughs> For sure. when I was in training, we, uh, we went every Monday, we went into a prison to do medical care. I, I had a clinic in the prison. That and is we saw, awesome. yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, we weren't allowed, the girls weren't allowed to wear dresses. Um, and so it was, uh, it was a very interesting experience. But I didn't like to know what they did. I didn't, I didn't want to know. And, and I don't have any judgment. Like, I mean, lots of people are incarcerated for lots of different reasons. But right. there are some people that, you know, there are certain crimes that really resonate with people, you know, crimes against children, crimes against women, domestic violence type things where, you know, that can be very personal for people. And I didn't. I didn't want to know because I didn't want to even have the possibility of my medical care being influenced by my opinion of their, of their crimes. Now, as I got older, I became better at, at separating and really compartmentalizing, which is I do very well, which is not always a good thing, but it, <laughs> you don't oh, always get yeah. to do that in command. Sometimes you have to have as a supervisor or as a commander, as a leader, sometimes you have to have all of that information. So you really have to learn to recognize when that information might be influencing your decision-making and, and find a way to step out of it. And some of the ways I did that were by using advice, you know, trusted advisors, sharing the situation with one or two people that I could trust and, and kind of getting their perspectives. Or one of my favorite things to do is whatever your opinion about discipline or guidance or whatever it is on this person, pick someone who's the opposite of how you feel. So if it's your favorite person, pick your least favorite, would you do the same thing? And the vice versa, if this is the person that causes you the most trouble, if this is one of your, your good ones, would you do the same thing? And kind of juxtaposing those, those things were very helpful for me to say, okay, am I being objective? Does the, does the crime fit the, or the punishment fit the crime? Does the award fit the accomplishment? Like, what are we doing here? Oh, for sure. I, I, I think that's an awesome example. And I, I'm actually kind of a little envious that you got to have that clinical experience. That is pretty awesome to me. Um, but I, I also commend colleagues and peers and teachers for doing that. 
Um, oh, because awesome. a, a lot of people couldn't do that. No, <laughs> to be it? very frank, as you know, a lot of people in our, our world in medicine would absolutely unequivocally just say absolutely not. No, it was, it was an amazing experience. And honestly, I feel um, very lucky to have had the opportunity to contribute to their medical care because uh, they did not get, the, the medical care was not as frequent or as extensive as I would have liked. And there were patients, so, you know, I speak Spanish. There aren't a lot of people in South Carolina that speak Spanish. <laughs> and wow. okay. I, so I had all of the, <laughs> I had all of the Spanish speaking um, prisoners uh, would see me. And I had one guy, no one had taken his cast off in forever long. Cause he'd been trying to tell them that it was time to come off and cause it had happened before his incarceration. And so there were things like that that just made me mm -hmm. so sad that there's no one here to talk to this person. But one, one guy, we're talking and my Spanish, I didn't get to talk, speak Spanish a lot when I moved out of San Antonio. And so you feel a little rusty. Like sometimes people are talking and, you know, in San Antonio, it's all Mexican Spanish, which is what I speak. Uh, but in South Carolina, we have Dominican, Ecuador, El Salvador, like you name it, there's lots of different people. And so, and the dialects are a little different. The accents are very different. Um, they use conjugations like vosotros that we don't really use in Mexican Spanish. So it was, it was different. So I had to really think when I was speaking Spanish. Well, this guy was here to see me about his ankle or something or his wrist. I forget. It was something straightforward. And we're talking and he's like, can I ask you another question? I said, absolutely. And he starts telling me and I have to step back and I'm like, oh my goodness, I, I can't be, I can't be, this is, must be wrong. I'm not understanding. And I ask him again, he was telling me he needed his antipsychotic medications because since he'd been in the prison. Oh boy. He had not gotten his medications and the voices that tell him to hurt people are back. And I'm like, and clearly uh, your, your uh, listeners can't see my face oh. right now, but yeah. But I'm like, hold, hold on, sir. Thank you for telling me, hold on. I'm going to get you help. And, but you know, as an orthopedic surgeon, I didn't hear sounds like the voices telling me to kill people are back. That's not something I heard a lot in the orthopedic clinic. And so, wow. okay. but, but I was, I was so grateful that he told me, you know, and, and it just made me so sad that there was no one else for him. So I, I we're kind of digressing a little bit, just <laughs> it was fun to talk about that part of my practice. Cause it was, it was fascinating. And, and I actually took care of a lot of really fantastic. And clearly the nurse and me is not helping the situation. <laughs> <laughs> I got to talk about some, talk to some really fantastic individuals who were, you know, being, being in prison means you made a mistake and you got caught and, and who knows, who knows beyond that. Uh, but I was glad to be part of helping them get good medical care because we did in fact give them good medical care. Uh, but it's just an interesting uh, perspective to, to have to hear those things and understand their crimes and have to act on it. And that was one thing that I had to grow into as a leader is being able to hear that information and still try to make an objective decision or at least recognize that it might be influencing how I was thinking about the situation. So I needed to step back from myself as I make the decision. And again, that's, you know, it's extremely commendable. And I, uh, is, I got to spend part of my summer doing um, my commissioning program, working for an NP friend of mine, a nurse practitioner friend who uh, worked at a uh, low income homeless clinic. Um, and I got to be her nurse for the summer. She's like, Hey, you want to come work for me? And I'm like, yeah, but I got to do it for free. As long as you're good with not paying me. She's like, Oh, I won't pay you at all. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, well, then we're great then. And, you know, we had a mobile clinic out at a, you know, a homeless shelter and, you know, similar circumstances of just, you got to remain objective. And, and it also taught me, you know, leadership's fluid.
it, it's ever changing and it's fluid and, and maintaining your objectivity like that as a leader, it's not easy. And, and as you just spoke on, you know, seeing those patients and being able to pull that information versus, you know, your, your lens on at that point, I would say you had your orthopedic surgeon lenses on the second the word psych came in some, out of somebody's mouth, I am jumping on it. Um, because I'm like, oh, well, we need to handle that. Um, and, you know, my lens at that point would be different. And, and even now, I, I would say, you know, the surgeons and, and physicians I work with, our lenses are very different, you know, as leaders um, outside of medicine, just as leaders in general, um, everybody wears a different lens. You know, the, the, the company grade officers wear a different lens than the field grade officers, as you know. But, you know, leaders just in general, and, and I think we see it a lot in the civilian sector, you know, and our lenses are blurred to the civilian sector. And we're like, what's going on, but all we see is what, you know, gets portrayed, you know, on social media, really what lens are we looking through is where I would go with that. And, you know, again, commendable that, you know, anyone yourself and your peers would even go down that road and that you, ma'am, were able to pull that away from it, especially when that could have potentially turned into a very dangerous situation. Right, exactly. No, I agree. Um, I, I feel really blessed that I, that I got to be there and absolutely. Well, and I hope he's doing okay. I mean, he oh, was, absolutely. I, I, the fact that he was aware of it and was bringing it up for sure. Good on him as a patient. You yeah, know, that's what sure. I would say to that. For sure. So, so final thoughts. We we talked a lot about supervisors and the challenges and the benefits of being a supervisor. What's one piece of advice that you would give to someone supervising? people for the first time, or maybe just increasing their, their scope of supervision? I, I have to say, I, I try very hard to maintain the humbleness in being a supervisor because you have to be. Um, and I've had some great, great supervisors, as I've said, and, you know, I'll, I'll dime out one of them real quick. Uh, retired Master Sergeant Christopher Dooley was my very first enlisted supervisor. Um, great leader, great supervisor has taught me Everything you're hearing from me today most probably have been shaped coming from him and definitely credit him with where I am today as a supervisor. That said, um, it, it's one, don't stop learning as a supervisor. It is a never ending realm of learning to get better as a supervisor. Um, you always listen to the ones that have been doing it longer than you. Good, bad, or indifferent, listen. I'll, always get that feedback about how you did, hey, you know, I got this situation, sir, ma'am, um, you know, I did this, what do you think? You know, and if they say you jacked up, take it. Be like, okay, what do I do next time so I don't jack up? Just keep moving on from it and go from there and don't let that stop you being a supervisor. So as we kind of talked about, you know, as a supervisor, don't take no from those who can't, who can't say yes to you, especially as a supervisor, because um, it's your job to do that for your troop. You know, they're the ones that are going to come to you for a yes or a no. And a lot of times you are the yes or the no, but a lot of times it's above you and you have to go to your supervisor or your leadership and stand in between them and the boss. And, you know, standing in between the commander and one of your airmen defending your airmen gets challenging for sure. Um, so you have to be ready for that. You know, lastly, just don't ever take this is the way we've always done it. it it's a cop out to me. Um, if there's a way to improve on something, and I, I hate using the words fix, I'll say improve, um, because you never really need to fix something because it's working, but is it working as efficiently as it can be? So let's improve it. Um, and with that, you take care of your people. Um, you know, always take care of your people and, and don't take that excuse of, well, that's just how we've always done it. Um, because really, you're not going to improve anything both in yourself and as a supervisor. So you can't improve your people, you know, if you're just going to take that and, you know, cop out to 
excuses like that, in my opinion. Awesome. So you, you see supervisors as advocates. At the end of the day, I would say that is the perfect medical slash supervisory term. Yeah, <laughs> we, we are the advocates. And it's probably why I'm a nurse is, you know, you advocate for your people at the end of the day, no matter how you look at it. I love it. I love it. That's a great answer. Thank you so much. <laughs> you laugh, but it was good. Thank you so much for being here today. I really enjoy talking to you. And I, I think that your perspective, obviously, we share the firefighter into medical um, pathway, uh, but I appreciate all of the, the steps that you took in order to grow where you are today. I think that uh, that's really, it's really powerful to have gone through some of those wickets and, and learn those lessons so that you're more prepared to, to be that advocate today. So thank you so much for being here today. No, ma'am. Thank you so much. I, I truly do appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. You know, hopefully everyone will take something away from today and, you know, just improve upon themselves for the future. Awesome. So leadership and followership may change, but they're important at every single level. So this week, spend some time with your journal. Think about what makes a great boss or supervisor. Who are the best bosses you've had and what did they do? Now, look at your own behavior. Are you doing those things every single day? If you're not, brainstorm some ways that you can incorporate them into the way that you lead. Now, you might not actually be in charge, but that doesn't mean that you don't lead the people around you. And we can always practice these skills to get better at them. So y'all, that's been our discussion on supervising with heart with Lieutenant Nick Pauser. Hopefully you enjoyed the discussion. If you did, give it a like, subscribe, or share with a friend. If you didn't, Drop me a note on what I could do better. Next time, we'll talk to Dr. Stephanie Wilson, and she'll give us perspective on giving yourself grace. Don't forget to spend some time journaling and then head over to www.levelthepursuit.com to share your insights and your successes. I can't wait to learn from your thoughts. Thanks again for joining Level the Pursuit. While we can't choose where we start, we can choose our dreams and how we pursue them. Remember, Success is a team sport, and there's room for all of us to achieve our goals. So be a good leader, be a good follower, and do something great. <laughs>